Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Um, but we are going to be back in 1 Corinthians today, and we're going to be continuing our, our sub-series on spiritual gifts. We're going to continue talking about spiritual gifts. And before we get uh, back into the text, it's important for us to ask ourselves again, why did God promise to give every believer gifts? Why did God do that? Why did God promise that he would bestow upon every person that put their faith in him, every person that's indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Why did he promise to give them gifts? Why is that so important and significant to God? What is the significance of the gifts? Now, we learn this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, where it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man that it might profit everyone with all, every single one of us. So the reason God gives us spiritual gifts is so that we might profit others, that we might be a benefit to others. Spiritual gifts are not about us, and this is really important for, to, what, to what we're going to get into today. Spiritual gifts are not about us. They are not intended to make us feel better about ourselves or to make us feel spiritual or, or holy in any way. Spiritual gifts are God's mechanism for seeking souls and then binding them together in unity. He gives all of us spiritual gifts so that we might go out into the lost world and use those gifts to retrieve souls from their destiny of hell, to draw them into the body of Christ, and then use those gifts to further unify us as a family. That's what the gifts are for. God bestows each of us with a combination of unique gifts that help each of us to express love and devotion to the body of Christ. That's what it's about. Now, that was, that was chapter 13. We talked a lot about charity and the, and the purpose of the gifts being charity. But, but what's the context of chapter 14? At the time of Paul's letter, uh, when he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, they had already been a church for uh, several years, and many estimate that, that the church in Corinth was maybe eight to ten years old at the point of the letter. Now, in that time, the, the Corinthian church had established its own cultures, customs, and preferences. And so you can imagine after about ten years, these people, uh, you know, they take on probably the, the the, the stereotype of their leadership, and they've been led for a, a while now, and they, they've probably developed customs that are some combination of the members of the body, plus the culture of the community, plus the nature of their ministry. And so they, they, they take on a form, and all churches do this, all local churches do this to some degree. We've been a church for about 15 years, and, and so people from other churches, when they come and they see our church, they can see a, a particular culture or, 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 or particular customs that we abide by that they might not in their local assembly and vice versa. When we visit other churches in the fellowship uh, for, for conferences or different purposes, for retreats, it's, it's often really fascinating to see how, how that culture and that community manifests the Spirit of God. And so the church in Corinth, they've been, they've been around a minute now. They're 10 years old. 
right? They're like, in worldly terms, they're like prepubescent, right? Um, but, but in this time, you develop, you develop good customs, you, you develop traditions that are unique to you, that are good, that are profitable, uh, or neutral anyway, but then you also can take on and develop customs and, and ideas and concepts that are not good, right? Which certainly we have those as well. Now, in the church in Corinth, it was brought to Paul's attention that they had begun to vaunt the gift of tongues in particular as a more desirous gift than other gifts. They, they had begun to, to, to lift up this, this one unique gift above all the other gifts. And, and the people in the congregation all desired to speak in tongues. And not only that, but, but this, the, the work or act of speaking in tongues was beginning to, to take up a lot of time in the weekly services. And so, so people were practicing these, these gifts and it was beginning to consume the attention of the people. Now, this could, have, this could be for, for several different reasons why this happened, Right? Uh, perhaps, perhaps it was this gift's uniqueness, right? It's kind of a strange thing to be able to, to suddenly and miraculously be able to speak in a foreign language. Uh, maybe it was because it was, it was peculiar and, and unique to observe. Um, but either way, the church in Corinth was drawn to it to the point that they preferred it above other gifts. And in so doing, they neglected the greater, more charitable objectives behind the gifts themselves, so what was happening was they were focusing so much attention on what people were doing and the gifts that they had that they had lost track that the primary objective of every spiritual gift is to express charity and to unify the congregation, right, under the banner of truth. Now, they had put their personal preferences over God's priorities and his purposes. And here's the deal. This was a problem in Corinth, and it's a problem for us today as well. It's a problem in the church today as well. Too many people are more concerned with their gifts, with their talents, than they are about charity. People are hungrier for the feelings that are, that are stirred in their personal experiences of worship they're more concerned with social recognition and how people perceive them than they are hungry to be spiritually beneficial or valuable to the church at large. Now, look, we've, we've, these are themes that we've addressed so far in, in 1 Corinthians. We know that this is an issue. We, we know that all of us are prone to want to be seen. We are all prone to look for affirmation. I mean, especially when you're young and, and, and your faith is new and you're coming into your own and you're beginning to express your faith in new ways and you're in a, an exciting group of people just like this one, there is a tendency in this congregation for people to fight for attention and affirmation. It's a byproduct of just a, a room full of young people being together, wanting to seek the Lord. Everybody kind of wants a pat on the back and everybody kind of wants to know what their spiritual gift is and they, they kind of want to be able to use it in a way that will ultimately result in people looking to them favorably. Now, here's the danger. We sang about this. We sang about this very thing, is that so many of us have turned church into a talent show, right? 
So many of us have done that, and we don't even know that we're doing it. It's happening subconscious, week by week. But we've turned our gathering into a place where we can be seen. And that's exceptionally dangerous. Too many people would rather be seen. Too many people would, would rather be viewed as special. But not enough people want to be profitable. Not enough people just want to be profitable for the kingdom. Not enough people wake up on Sunday morning and get in their car and, 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 and say before the Lord, Lord, would you make me useful for your kingdom today? Too many of us are thinking about the obligations and how we might be seen. That we can't even begin, we can't even focus on the things that God would have us to do. And so as, we've, as has become custom in the First Corinthians series, I want to begin by asking a question that you would probably want to write down, and, and it's this. Is my need to receive affirmation. And by affirmation, I mean the sense of acceptance or approval. Is my need to receive affirmation greater than my need to express truth? Now listen, over, over the next couple weeks, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And the thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is it's, it's almost entirely uh, addressing this issue of speaking in tongues. So before we get into that material, I want to point out the fact that this is for a lot of people, this is kind of, this is kind of difficult territory. In a, in a room like this and in a church like ours, we've got people from many different cultural backgrounds, people from many different religious backgrounds, people who've had, who have had many different church experiences and have been taught many different things, and you're bringing them to this room, all right? And so on a Sunday morning, talking about tongues, I recognize that there is opportunity or potential for people to be offended by something that I might say. Now, I want to tell you right now, I'm not going to set out to offend anyone. I'm setting out to simply preach the word, okay? I, I'm going to do my dead level best to express the truth of God's word while also acknowledging the fact that this is complicated for people. I don't actually think it's very complicated in Scripture, I think it's just complicated for people because, you know, we're prone to make really simple things complex and confusing. And the church has done that very thing with the topic of spiritual gifts and with the topic of speaking in tongues specifically. And so we're going to try to make sense of what the Bible says about speaking in tongues, but I want to, I want to make sure that you know that I love you. And I think it's important for us to agree together in love that we will wade through the biblical waters and uh, we will seek to commit to intellectual honesty and faith in what the Bible says. Like, can we commit to that together? Can we work towards those ends? Yeah? Amen? Amen. Okay. Let's pray for that. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. I thank you for these people. It's good to be back in the pulpit. Um, I need to knock the rust off. It's been, it's been a few weeks. And so, um, God, I, I pray that in this time that you would actually speak through me, um, that uh, I wouldn't be overly concerned about what may have been forgotten over the last few weeks or that I wouldn't obsess about what needs to be said. But, Lord, that you would, you would share or you would bring to my attention exactly what needs to be said and that these people uh, in this room whom I do love and whom you love even more would walk away that, mu that much more confident in what your word says and what your will for their life is. Lord, I, I pray that today you would make uh, this group of people, Kaya, 
um, a tribe of preachers, um, a, a group of fearless, um, you, you know, just fearless prophesiers of truth, that they would go everywhere ready and prepared to speak about who you are and speak about it in the terms that your scripture presents. And so, Lord, I, I ask for help, and I, I, I pray that you would prompt us in that direction. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's too, we're covering too much. Time. You know how I usually just read it all? I'm not starting that way. Not today. Okay, we're going to do a verse at a time. Let's start with verse 1. It says here, the instruction is, comes right out the gate, readdressing this issue of charity. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. So right away, Paul reminds us again to follow after charity. Now, this word follow um, is, is translated in Scripture, in the New Testament, uh, many times as the word persecute, okay? But it also is translated as the word press. And so here's the meaning of the word follow. It's to press or pursue or ap apply pressure. It's to apply pressure. And so, so we are to apply pressure after charity. We are to press after charity. In Philippians 3.14, we see this word press. It says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I put pressure towards the objective of pursuing Christ in everything that I do. I apply myself in the work of following after him. In other words, we are to press for the mark of charity. That's what verse 1 is telling us. We are to press towards that objective. To follow after charity is to further Christ's cause. Which I think we all want to do, right? We all want to further the cause of Christ. But here's the deal. We can't, we can't follow according and we can't press according to our own desires. We don't get to follow Christ the way we want to follow Christ. We have to follow Christ the way he prescribes for us to follow him. And that is the charitable path. Follow, following after charity is the, is the method and the heart behind the whole Great Commission. It is a necessary aspect of what it means to press for the prize. We must follow charity according to his plan and purposes for our lives. Why? Because charity is eternal. Charity is an, an eternal thing. So, re, so remember the last time we were together. We learned that charity is eternal, but some gifts are temporal. Remember that? In chapter 13, we learned that there are some gifts that are temporal in nature. They, they, they're fleeting. They're going to come, and then they'll go. Right? They'll go away. But charity... The love of Christ that lives within us is eternal. It'll be with us forever. In eternity future, what we're going to have with Christ is an absolute love relationship. The bride finally with the bridegroom, and we will get to celebrate that love for all eternity. But even now, the work of charity abides with us here. Our hearts ought to be full of love. And that love ought to be expressed in every engagement that we encounter with the lost and with those who are believing. Uh, charity, charity is a big deal. Now, in this chapter, chapter 14, we're going to learn that to follow after charity is to understand that the more permanent gift of preaching, preaching is greater 
than the more temporal gifts of tongues. That is why God is very clear in verse 1 when he says, Desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. Now, what he's saying is it's okay to desire spiritual gifts. Now, there's, there's people in the room right now who are desirous of spiritual gifts. I mean, whatever those gifts may be, I pray that you desire them. Now, some of you need to come in ex- to, to the point where you accept the gifts that God has given you, and you need to learn to desire what he's made you to be. But others of us aren't sure. And so we ought to be desirous of the revelation of those gifts in our life as we do ministry. And some of, some of us will be teachers and pastors, and some of us will be servants and will be hospitable. Others of us will, will engage in, in, in all kinds of different activities that God has made us to do. But, but here's the deal. We ought to desire spiritual gifts. Desire spiritual gifts. But here's the deal. But it's of greater significance than all the gifts that you may be desirous of. It's greater significance that you be a preacher. Amen. You know, in an Old Testament um, or apostolic context, the word prophesy, sometimes it included the concept of foretelling, telling of, of future events, right? And we, when we say the word prophesy or we say prophetic or, or prophet, what we usually mean when we say those words, at least in, in our contemporary vernacular, what we're doing is we're imposing on that term the idea that someone is telling the future. Now, in Scripture, the word prophesy is used sometimes in that way, but a lot of times it's used just to simply mean what the word means, and that is to declare, to foretell, to preach. The word prophesy in this context means to preach, to preach truth. So here's our first key point. Every believer is responsible for preaching. Every single believer is responsible to preach. Now, you thought that was my job. Because another problem with the way that we talk about the term preaching, we don't talk about it the way that the Bible does. Right? We like, when we say preach, we're talking about the preacher. We're talking about the pastor, the guy that's in the pulpit from week to week. But here's the thing I want to let you in on. It is not my responsibility alone to preach. In fact, the overwhelming use of the word preach has very little to do with pulpit ministry in Scripture. The word preach in Scripture is most often used in the context of daily life. The average individual, the average laity in the church going out into the community and speaking the truth of God's word. That is the overwhelming use of the word preach. Now, while preaching is a gift, and and hopefully pastors have that gift, I guess not all of them do, but hopefully the majority of preachers have that gift. So while it's a gift, it's also an expectation. It's also an expectation for every person. So, So while it may be a gift for some, it's an expectation for every believer, and we ought to desire to preach, not fear it. The idea in the room right now, I know some of you are thinking, the idea that you would, you would, at your workplace, for instance, preach the gospel is terrifying for you. And so your primary hope is that somehow, because you're afraid, that you can convince your coworkers to come with you to church and listen to that guy preach. 
or, or, or to bring them to Bible study and let the other people in your Bible study do the preaching. But I, I want to let you in on a secret. Those coworkers that you have, God expects you to preach to them. Those family members that you have that you're afraid to speak up about what you're learning from the Word of God, what you're learning from discipleship, God expects you to open your mouth to, to not deflect or, or to push that responsibility off on, on me. Look, here's the deal. You have all the advantage, don't you? You bring someone in here that, that's their very first time coming to church or they don't know me, right? They don't know me I, and I don't know them. Now, the Holy Spirit might use that. In fact, we have people get saved in our services almost weekly. So praise the Lord for that. God might use that. But here's the deal. You know them. <laughs> you, uh, God willing, have been building a relationship with that individual for weeks and months or maybe years. If anyone has been commissioned to preach the gospel to that person, it's you. God put them in your life. And we, we need to get over this, these fears of, 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 of speaking what God is teaching us. It's our job to preach. It's our responsibility. Now, now, Paul is about to point out that while tongues were biblically valid, and they were, they were a biblically valid gift at the time, we'll come back. We talked about this already. I f- here's the hard thing about this. I, keep, I feel like I keep coming back to this stuff, that I need to reiterate these things. But, but it is important. This was a gift that was specific for this time. We'll hit that again later. So he wants to point out to them that while tongues were valid, that the gifting was not without its shortcomings even then. The gift of tongues had its shortcomings even then. So let's remind ourselves what tongues were. All right, let's start there. I think all this stuff should be in the slide. The gift of tongues was the momentous and miraculous ability to speak in a language for which one was never trained to speak. All right? And this is most clearly exemplified in Acts chapter 2. Right? That... that you know, after the men came out of the upper room, they were, they were gifted, they were um, bathed in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they stepped out into the street, and they began speaking in languages for which they never learned. And people could hear the gospel in their own native language. It was a miraculous work. That's what the gift of tongues is. Now, in the three times we see tongues on display in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 4, Acts chapter 10, verse 46, and Acts 19, 6. In all of these instances, we clearly see that speaking in tongues was intended to do two things. Two things. That is to make the gospel known to an audience who spake a foreign language and to create a spectacle intended to confirm the validity of the gospel message itself. So it did two things. One, It gave an avenue for a person to clearly communicate to someone who didn't speak their native language, okay? And the other thing, for everyone observing, was people were intended to say, oh my goodness, God is in this thing. Look at this miracle that's taking place. Wow, God must be in this message. He must be behind this. He must be provoking this. This gospel thing, it must be of God. And so that's what it was doing. There's a very specific gifting with a very specialized application. So let's, let's let Paul explain this further in verse 2. 
For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him. Okay, what does that mean? It means that no, no man, the idea that no man, meaning the common person in the congregation, could understand what was being said when someone, when this gift came upon someone, the average person, right? Like if I suddenly began speaking in, I don't know, Portuguese, there's like two or three people in the room that would understand, and the rest of you would have no idea what I was talking about, right? Now, this is what was happening in the church. It says further in verse 2, Howbeit in the Spirit, he speaketh mysteries. So when he's overcome in the Spirit and this, and this gift overtakes him and he begins, this person begins speaking in tongues, they speak mysteries. People can't understand. So when someone in the church uh, would speak in a foreign language that no one else understood, whatever truth those words may have contained... They remained a mystery to the general congregation. Not that there weren't purposes for someone to speak in tongues. Clearly at the time there were. But not at the expense of the rest of the church community. It was, a, it was an abuse of the time that they were spending together. Tongues were a gift for a small audience. Which meant that by its very nature, when employed had limited benefits to the church congregation as a whole. Does this make sense to everyone? So again, Paul says that prophesying or preaching has a much greater value to the church. Look at verse 3. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Okay, so, so while the gift of speaking in tongues may have had some value, it was a mystery to the majority of the listeners. But when a person preaches the gospel, when a person stands up and, and orates about what they've learned from God's word, that has a greater and a more valuable benefit to the congregation as a whole. Why? Because it does three things. It edifies. The first thing, it has an edification function, which means it's a message that encourages our faith. That's what edification means, a message that encourages our faith. But it also exhorts. It exhorts. It's a message that instructs our walk. It should instruct us on how we ought to live. And then thirdly, it should comfort. It should comfort. There should be a comforting component to it, which means the message itself should console the hearts of the people. That's what preaching does. And it is 1,000 degrees in this room right now. Is it not? Yes. And I can tell. I'm looking at you guys, and I'm losing you. Half of you are falling asleep. And while that may be because I don't have the gift of preaching, it is more than likely that it's just because we've turned the room into a, a furnace and you feel like a warm biscuit. Yeah, just prop that door open. I don't know what's going on. Well, we don't believe you. You speak at the mystery. All right. So... So preaching had a threefold function. And all of these things are intended to benefit the whole. The whole of the congregation was to find benefit in these three ways. So here's the next key point. The act of preaching holds unparalleled value in the church and actually to the lost world. 
It holds unparalleled value. It means there's nothing else like it in the entirety of the work of the church. There is nothing like preaching. Preaching do the most. You're not going to amen that? It does. Preaching gets a lot done. Preaching is important. And preaching is what we should all do. Because all of your Christian activity and all your Christian busyness and, and no matter how kind and no, no matter how charitable you are to people, at the end of the day, if you don't open your mouth with the intention to edify, exhort, and comfort, you're not doing it right. We have to open our mouth. There is great value for all of us in the work of preaching. Now, conversely, verse 4 says, He that speaketh an unknown tongue edifieth himself. It has, a, it has a limited value. But he that prophesieth, what? Edifieth the church. See, tongues was a good gift. Tongues was a good gift because it met a specific need. But preaching is better because it meets a broad, meets a broad and more pronounced need in the church. So Paul's admonishment is simple. Verse 5. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather, rather, but instead that ye prophesy. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. So Paul says that it is a greater thing to preach than it is to speak in tongues. So principally, this is what we ought to learn from that. All right, this is what we ought to learn. Principally, we learn that it's better to focus on preaching than spotlighting our gifts, than, than bringing attention to the things that we can do. Now, he includes a caveat here, and he says that unless someone volunteered the gift of interpretation, right, then it has very little value. So in other words, we talked about this previously, that there's a gift of interpretation in the first century church, Okay, where there was tongues, there should have been an interpreter. And we'll get to this later because there's a need for order in the, in the church service. And so we're going to talk about order in church later. But, but the point was is that it was no good for someone to speak up and speak in tongues unless there was someone there to make sense of it all. All right? Why? To what end? Well, that people might be edified because edifying is the main thing. It's necessary so for now, though, let's, let, we'll come back to that, the, the, the topic of interpretation later. For now, let's figure out what makes uh, one, one spiritual gift more profitable than another. Can we do that? Verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. And even things without life Give, uh, without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? Okay, so what is he asking here? He asked them this question, where is the prophet in tongues? Where is the prophet? What good is a word of special revelation or a word of knowledge or preaching or teaching if the sounds themselves are indistinguishable? If they, don't, if they don't have meaning behind them, 
they're void. Now, I don't want to go down this road too far because I have a lot to say on this subject matter. All right? But I want to point out to you that for a long time in religion, that Satan has been seeking to deceive people that the highest form of spirituality is actually absent of meaning. Okay, so in Buddhism, Buddhism's form of salvation is actually the absence of meaning. When one comes to a place of complete nirvana, it means they are a person without thought or purpose or intent, and they they disappear into the void. This is the belief. In so many Eastern religions, there there are forms of meditation that seek to do what? This is true in Hinduism, this is true in Buddhism, Taoism, many religions like this. Where you you chant a mantra or you chant a sound that's intended to relieve your mind of all thought and purpose and intent. It's intended to wipe the slate clean. Why? Because Satan knows where there's an absence of truth and meaning, there is room for him to work. Where, Where absolutes are gone. There is space for vanity. Satan knows that. Which is why in tribal cultures, when someone is possessed, they speak in a language that makes no sense, not even to those tribal people, and they flail about, they lose control of their body, and they they make sounds and grunts that are indistinguishable. Now, I'm going to come back to this a little bit later in the sermon, but, but, but we should understand the church has invited the absence of meaning into their worship. They've invited it. They've made space for emptiness and meaning, which, which is why, listen, you know how like, big a deal right now in, in the church contemplative prayer is? Now, you may have never heard of this, but contemplative prayer is a dangerous thing. Contemplative prayer is trying to connect to God without meaning. That is where contemplative prayer goes. I mean, you all know about this stuff, like lucid dreaming, for instance. Such a big deal. You know what that is? That's people... Seeking a prophetic word outside of God. That's people looking for hidden truths outside, outside of the one who holds all truth. You will not find purpose there. You will not find meaning. Now, now here's the deal. Without, without distinguishment in the words, without meaning behind them, they're useless. Verse 8 says this. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So you can imagine, I mean, apparently this was true in Roman and Greek culture too, that particular sounds from a trumpet meant particular things for an army to do. Different activities associated with different instrumentation, a different series of notes would produce activity in people. Maybe it meant it was time to eat. Maybe it meant it was time for battle. Now, we've, we see this, I mean, particularly, I don't know if they still do this. I'm not in the military. Some of you, some of you are. Uh, but, but here's the deal. 
when it's time to eat, I suppose there was a horn to play, right? And maybe they still do that. Is there a sound that's like, what's, make the sound. Can you make it? <laughs> but we know from watching Civil War movies, right, that there was a sound for battle. There was a particular sound that was intended to invite people into battle. Now, here's the thing. If you can't distinguish the sounds of those notes, then you don't know what to do. And when someone gets up in front of people and makes sounds or does things that are indistinguishable, with no meaning, that are empty, then how are we supposed to know what it means to follow God? How are we supposed to know what it means to pursue Him? How are we supposed to know His terms for worship and what He expects if we can't make sense of what's being said? So likewise, ye accept... Uh, ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Ye shall speak into the air. It'll be vain. Your words will be vain. Tongues had their place in the first century church. They did. But listen, even then, the value of the gift was limited by the nature of its audience. For most of the church, what was spoken was indistinct and incomprehensible. Well, God's people, both then and now, what they need is not extravagant or astonishing experiences. They don't need that. What they need is truth. They need the timely words, fitly words spoken from God's word. That's what they need. So as we've studied previously in 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible has been completed. This, the, that which is perfect has come, has it not? If you believe this book is perfect, then you believe that which is perfect has come. It has come. And it's intended to give us meaning for our lives. It's in, intended to, to distinguish for us what it looks like to live like a Christian. It's the words that we need. It's the words that we need. And because of that, we no longer need some of these sign gifts. They were temporal. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So whether we're talking about first century Corinth or 21st century America, the, the reality remains the same. People don't need a new word. They need to understand the old one. They don't need a new word. They don't need your prophecy. And they don't need what you call, call tongues. What they need is for someone to preach. Key point. The hallmarks of preaching are biblical adherence and simplicity of speech. What do you need to be a preacher? What do you need to become a preacher? You need to learn the Bible because any preaching that you do that's outside of the Bible is only just opinion, isn't it? You need to learn the Bible, and then you need to learn something very, very important. And I hope that this brings some people some confidence. You need to be simple. You don't need to sound smart. 
You don't need a theology degree. You don't need a master's of divinity to, 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 to preach the gospel. You need to take the things that you know, the things that you've learned, and you need to speak them simply and plainly to anyone who listens. That's what you need to do. If, if all you know is the testimony of what Christ did in you, speak that. Talk about that. Talk about it till you're blue in the face. Talk about it to everyone who, who will give you their ear. Say it over and over and over again. Speak the truth from God's word that you know. Commit to that. But this is what we all need. And this is what the lost world needs too. Listen to what Romans chapter 10 says, verse 14. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? So hearing is critical. People need to hear. Well, how do they hear? Words must be spoken. And how shall they hear without a preacher? If you think that your family members are going to magically hear the gospel... You might, you might have made a critical mistake. They need a preacher, and that preacher is you. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. And bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel... For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what do we learn from this passage? That in order to receive the truth, in order for people to get saved from their sin, it requires that other people would speak words that are delivered in a biblical and understandable way. They, they need to be delivered in a biblical and understandable way. So we need to adhere to what Scripture says, and we need to speak plainly. We need to speak plainly. Now, we're going to do a history lesson. Are you ready for a history lesson? This is going to give me an opportunity to uh, get a sip of water. I have to say, over the years, okay, you get two kinds of water bottles. Right? <laughs> I used to think I wanted this water bottle. But this water bottle falls. It falls. Look, it's, it's very unstable. It's unstable as water, yeah. And I'm, you know, it's going to fall over. I know it. I prefer these. I've come to the conclusion. What? It's simpler. It's more plain. And in that way, it's more stable. Okay. Ready for a history lesson? So for a second, I want to I take, take you backwards about 120 years. The time machine. Um, now here's the deal. Before we do that, I want to mention to you that, that over the last thousand years, that this issue of the sign gifts has, been, has come in and out of favor in, uh, among um, the, the fringe of the Christian world. All right, the primary view of the, and I'm not even always a fan of the church fathers, but there was consensus here. Um, among those first few century believers, there was consensus that the sign gifts had gone away, just as Paul had prophesied in chapter 13. 
Now, there were some of a more Gnostic tradition that sought to use gifts and the abstraction and ambiguity of that idea to create sects of believers that were, again, fringe and minor. So these kinds of Christians have always existed, people who always insisted that they had this gift of speaking in tongues often referred to by theologians as glossolalia, the, the ability to miraculously speak in a foreign tongue. But, it, but again, is, is very rare, uh, very rare. But the modern Pentecostal movement in America was born in, on New Year's Eve in 1901, in 1901. As a group of Bethel Bible students in Topeka, Kansas, gathered for a late-night prayer meeting. They were going to pray in the new year, okay? And each one, they earnestly anticipated that God would do something miraculous. The school was started by a Methodist Episcopal minister named Charles Fox Parham, pictured there. It's a very trustworthy mustache. (laughs) Who was a follower. They, They say that people with mustaches, they always have something to hide. Okay. So, Charles Fox Parham was a follower of what was called the Holiness Movement, the Holiness Movement, which is a heretical movement that taught that even if one was saved, even if someone had professed Jesus Christ and and believed on him, that they were not actually cleansed from their sin until they had a second working of grace. They called it the second work of grace. Okay? Where if someone was sanctified at the point that they became good enough, then they would have another blessing of grace that would cleanse them from their sin. Now, we have no such doctrine. You understand? We have no such doctrine. Jesus Christ's gift of grace through faith was sufficient for our salvation in every regard. And the Bible is very clear on the matter. The one puts, when one puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells them. And now you know, the Holy Spirit, God's presence, cannot indwell something that is not completely holy. It refuses to. Okay, God, God, light and dark don't coexist. And so unless I've been cleansed and forgiven of my sins, unless I have been uh, uh, justified in the sight of God, well, then the Holy Spirit can't dwell in me, which is part of their presupposition. And so now they think... Because, because I've committed to the work of following God, that somewhere along the way, as I get good, well, then I'm entitled to a second blessing. There's no such teaching in Scripture. This is what the holiness movement taught, and this is what, this is what Charles Parham believed. Now, sometime in the early hours of New Year's Day of 1901, after they'd worked themselves into several hours of uh, frenzious prayer, a woman named Agnes Osmond asked her teacher Parham to lay hands on her and pray that she would receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is someone who already professed to know Christ, but because she wanted a second blessing, she asked Parham to lay hands on her. And at this point, the account is that she was surrounded by an aura and then suddenly began speaking in the Chinese language and was, was unable to speak English at all, in fact, for three hours. And when she tried to write in English, she only just wrote in Chinese. Now, let me show you the Chinese that she wrote. 
Now listen, I'm being, I want to be genuine with you here for a moment, okay? Now listen, it's, it's humorous. It, it seems humorous, right, on the surface. But this was a very, like from all accounts, this was an earnest woman who desired to know God. But was deceived because someone told her that it was okay to look for meaning in things that are indistinguishable. Someone told her it was okay to find meaning in the esoteric and the ambiguous. Someone told her it was okay to seek experience in Christianity rather than truth. And, and as many people do, they earnestly seek that experience, and, and guess what? They find it. They find the experience they're looking for. <clears throat> Over the next few days and weeks, similar experiences fell on her and her fellow students who reported being able to speak Russian, Japanese, Bulgarian, French, Swedish, on and on and on. Parham and his followers were so convinced that they spoke foreign languages that they began promoting the idea that Pentecostal missionaries could go to foreign lands without having gone to, school, to, to language school. Boasting to the Kansas City Times, this is before the star apparently, the following. This is what, this is what Parham said. A part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for power. So they went. They, they started taking trips. They started taking, can you imagine in 1901 what a trip to China would be like? What that might cost you? How much energy and, and, and time traveling to get there would be? only to find out that you weren't actually speaking Mandarin? They, they sent missionaries operating under these expe expectations to Japan, China, India, each one returning in shame, declaring that in no single, this is a quote, in no single instance were they able to preach in those languages. It's terrible. It's shocking, somewhat humorous, but more than any of that, it's absolutely terrible. Can you imagine the disappointment? The deception that you would feel? Here's the key point that we need to take away, that this is really important. What people in modern churches refer to as tongues today holds no semblance to the sign gift of scripture. What they're doing in churches today when they call it tongues is in no way anything like we've talked about so far in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or 14. It's not the same. The Pentecostals of the time had the choice of admitting that they were wrong, but they did not. Others chose to ignore that the missionary tongues debacle had ever even occurred. They just pretended like it didn't happen. 
But the truth is their words were unintelligible gibberish. And it had become the entire focus of their ministry. It was the main thing. And the whole time it was, it was gibberish. Parham and Pentecostals after him have altered their view of tongues. So no longer do they believe that, they are, that, they, that it has anything to do with a foreign language. And instead, they declare that they've received some sort of divine utterance. That's what they've done. So they've erased this history. And they've shifted their thinking. And now what they say, it's a divine utterance. It's, the, it's an angelic tongue. It's not meant to be understood by people. Okay. Show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible where it says that the gift of tongues is a divine utterance and the, and the language of angels. Show me. Show me in the instances and in acts that that's what was going on. So many, many Pentecostals also believe that speaking in tongues is a required sign to prove whether or not salvation has actually occurred in your life. So they took the teaching of the holy, holiness movement and they applied it to this belief that if you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, that the sign would be that you speak in tongues. And this is held to today. And there are churches all over this community. In fact, brothers and sisters in whom we love, who we, who we care for, who are as, as saved as you are, in our community, still adhere to this teaching very, very rigorously. I mean, Topeka, Kansas is like just right there, right? So over the last hundred years, this teaching has been pre predominant in this region and area. So here's the deal. Look, there's a, there's a lot to say about this. There's a lot to say about this history, but I want to reiterate what Paul says, if I can. If our gospel is not understood, if our gifts do not edify, then we become as a tinkling cymbal or a sounding brass, a trumpet with no certain sound. That's what we've become. Verse 10 says, there are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world and none of them is without signification. There are many, in other words, there are many languages in the world and all of them have distinct sounds and meanings. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian. And he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret Verse 14, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. In other words, if a person may, was to pray out loud in a foreign language, their spirit is praying, but the speaker even himself would not understand what they were saying. Even the speaker doesn't know. Verse 15, what is it then? In other words, so, so what should I do then? I will pray with, with the spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. In other words, Paul's declaring a choice that he's made. He says, 
I will sing and pray in a way that blesses my spirit and blesses my understanding. I will choose to speak plainly so that everyone in attendance, including myself, knows exactly what is being communicated because that is the way that you edify. This allows for others to confirm whether or not what is being said is even of the Lord and then they can affirm that or or disaffirm that. Look, there's no truth in chaos. There's no truth in chaos. And many, many of you, this is like, this concept is completely foreign to you, but there are many churches in our city, even this morning, if you were to walk in, you would have, you'd have a hard time seeing the difference between what's happening in their service and in a pagan tribal ceremony. And yet the lost are supposed to go to the church to find truth. And they can't. Verse 16. Else, when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at the giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. Now listen to the statement. I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than y'all. In other words, I'm glad that this is a responsibility that I carry. This is what Paul's saying. That many of you don't. But he goes further and he says this. Yet in the church, in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding than by my voice, that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So here's the deal. This is how we're going to conclude. Words without understanding are empty. There are so many words in this world. There are so many people that are talking. There is so much content being put out. Are you not overwhelmed with the amount of content that you're coming in contact with on a daily basis? On your Instagram account and your emails, on your Facebook, text messages, the options on TV, all of the many millions and billions of voices, everyone saying, this is true. What I'm saying is true. Believe me. Believe me. No, believe me. No, believe me. It's absolute chaos everywhere. And in a world like this, how does a Christian compete, compete against so many false teachings and atheistic ideologies? What hope in our world is there that we could ever make the truth known? How will it ever emerge from a sea of lies? What good is it to be a believer in 2023? Now, let me tell you, the answer is not another Christian podcast. The answer is not another conference or revival meeting. The answer is not another apologetics website or book. The answer isn't the next cool Christian clothing brand. I don't know why they keep, how did I fall into that algorithm on Instagram? (laughs) Where every Christian clothing company is being advertised to me. I don't, I don't need, look, I went through the time in which they took like name brands like Reese's and Mountain Dew, and then they made Christian t-shirts out of that. Like I went through that. 
I don't need to be revisited with any Christian clothing brands. That's not going to save the world. It's not, it's not in one-minute theology TikToks. God doesn't need more Christians debating on Reddit. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need you to get a tattoo with your favorite Bible verse. The answer is not in experientialism or religious fanaticism or Christian behavior. Christian, there are so many empty exercises. There are so many futile attempts being made. And none of them hold the answer. The answer for a lost world is God's people unabashedly preaching the gospel. Choosing to open their mouths. Not waiting, not hesitating, but finding every opportunity to speak of the goodness of God. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. It is this moment in the book of Acts that the whole world changes. Christianity went from being a tiny phenomenon in the city of Jerusalem to overtaking the whole world. Why? Because a handful of believers were scattered and they preached the word. The answer to the confusion is in building relationships with people and opening your mouth with the intent that you might articulate the terms of the gospel. If the world has any hope, it's this. If there is any hope left before the return of Christ. I mean, I have to think. Alex, go ahead and come up. I have to think that the only reason that Christ has not yet returned is because he's waiting for me to open my mouth. One more time. One more person. That's his grace. Our world does not deserve it. He, he is only holding out for one reason, and that's that one more soul might enter his kingdom. And yet we refuse to speak up. And we're busy doing religious stuff. We're busy trying to work at pursuing Christian experiences. We want to come to church and we want to feel fuzzy every time our favorite worship song comes on. We're a world that mocks the song Oceans and makes light of worship songs and trite Christian cliches. And yet we don't engage when the worship comes forth. We're cynical, we're dark, and we're hard-hearted. And we're too busy complaining about how difficult it is to be a Christian to actually be one. To choose to actually be one and speak up. Because you know what? 
The, the term Christian, carrying that name, is contingent on whether or not you follow after charity. It's contingent on that. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? And if so, you will speak about the goodness of God from the book of God. That's what you'll do. And if you know that you're not preaching the gospel, you know this is difficult for you, you know that you're afraid, come forward and pray about it. If you've got questions about, about gifts of the Spirit, come talk about those too. Everybody's prepared to talk about that. But let's make a decision that we're going to be preachers. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, there is a big world and there are a lot of people that don't know you. They need to be reached. And how will they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? Lord, you've sent us. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost, you've sent us. Lord, make use of our lives. And help us to stop making excuses about following you with everything that we have. Help us. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.